Good afternoon, church. It's good to see you all. He is risen. All right. If you're new or visiting, welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been around for a while, also my name is Jesse. You might not recognize me because I look a little different. I've been transformed, you could say. Some people actually were shocked that I was looking this way. Um, but last year I did it too. So it's happened before. But anyway, um, you might be wondering why we did that He is Risen, He is Risen Indeed thing. I remember growing up in church and I had no idea why they were saying that. I thought it was a regular church. We didn't do any like liturgical stuff or culty sounding things, no responses. Uh, but every year at Easter, we would say He is Risen and then people would say He is Risen Indeed. So I decided to look that up. And it's really an old, old tradition. I, I had never really known this till recently. Uh, it actually goes all the way back to Scripture, okay, to the book of Luke. Um, but in the church, as kind of an Easter thing, uh, it started way back as an Easter greeting. Uh, and it really became kind of prominent in the church or popular in the Greek Orthodox Church, like centuries and centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, and they would say, he is risen. And then everyone would say, he is risen indeed. So anyway, it's a long-time tradition, but we don't just say it on this day because it's old or a tradition or what church people say. We say it because we believe it's true. Right Today, for the Christians here, we celebrate the risen Christ, King Jesus, our Lord, and we proclaim that in him the grave is conquered, that sin no longer has a hold on me, on us that there is life eternal in his name. That's why we celebrate Easter. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open uh, it up to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. I often say if you want to find it, it's before 2 Corinthians, but that's not helpful. That's kind of annoying. So 1 Corinthians, it's one of the early books in the New Testament. You go through the Gospels, the book of Acts. You go to Romans and then 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, we're going to read from verses 12 through 19. At Zoe, if you're new, we're not a fancy church, okay? We're a simple church. We want to be that way. And even if we try to be fancy, we couldn't. We would fail. I know no one wants to hear my 34-year-old wisdom. I know there's a kid in here saying, get out of here, old man. But for most of you, when you look at me, you're like, this guy doesn't know anything about life. He's barely, uh, you know, he barely knows anything about even just being a person. Um, but we, you know, here, because of that, we try to just stick with the Bible. Okay, it's not production quality. Again, it's not me. It's not anything flashy or fancy. We just try to open up the scripture, see what it says, see what God has for us. And we want God's word to do God's work in us. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Let me read it, then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify, testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, we come before you this afternoon. And we are here because it is Easter. Maybe we're here for the first time at this church because it is Easter. We're just checking it out. But God, we come before you and we acknowledge that you are real. Of course you are. God, you don't need us to acknowledge that. But so often, God, we forget. So often we forget about you. We live as if you are not real, as if Easter isn't true. But God, we know that there is a reality that doesn't depend upon us. It doesn't depend upon our faith, our belief, our sight, our hearing, our presence. It depends upon you and what you did. So God, I pray for every single person in this room. I pray for myself that we would see the reality of the things that are. That we would see the reality of who you are, who Christ is, and what he has done. And I pray that we would be transformed. God, we ask this in all humility. God, we know that it is a privilege to be here, to gather here to worship you. But God, we know you are gracious. We know you desire to see all people saved. God, so I pray that you would save, that you would sanctify. We pray all these things in Christ's name, our risen King. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered if it's worth it to be a Christian? Have you ever thought that in your mind? Maybe you're here today and this is your first time. Maybe a friend invited you here. They said, hey, it's Easter and that's what we do in Texas. We go to church. You want to come with me to my church? And you got to understand that the reason why they did this is because they care about you, right? They're a Christian. Christianity is important. Jesus is a major player in their lives. Maybe he even changed them. And they want to share that with you. So even though maybe you don't want to be pressured into believing, at least the fact that you're here in this room, sitting here listening to me, it's got to be there somewhere in the back of your minds, right? Like, is this worth it? I mean, what is this? Is this real? How should it affect me? And then I know that maybe for most of you, I mean, it's not like there's a million people in here. I know you guys. I know that you come to this church, you're regulars. I know that you believe in Jesus, that you have some kind of faith in him. But deep down inside, maybe you've wondered from time to time, is it worth it to be a Christian? You know, maybe it was on a Sunday morning, right? It's like, is it worth it to wake up every single Sunday at 11 a.m., right, and go to church at Zoe? Is it worth it to give up my sleep like that? Is it worth it, though, on a more serious note, to give up your money or your time or your effort or your youth? Is it worth it to give up your comfort? Church can be uncomfortable, especially small church where you actually got to, like, know people and talk to them and stuff. Or maybe, and I know that this applies to some of you, you're all in. Right, of course, you know, you were excited to wake up to come to church today. You were singing your heart out. But life's been a little hard lately, if you're honest. Stress, anxiety, loss, conflict, uncertainty about the future. 
And while you wouldn't say this out loud, but when we meet up one-on-one and we talk and I'm your pastor, you say, you know, there are a lot of tangible benefits about Christianity that I know are true, right? That there is a church family, a community that I can get, that I can have hope in the future, that I can have peace and intimate relationship with God. It's just that lately they haven't felt that tangible. They haven't really felt real, to be honest, right? I know that this is the right thing, that I should believe in God, that a good Christian would never doubt like this or feel this discontent. But honestly, Jesse, this is how I feel. Like it just isn't doing it for me. And eternal life and heaven and all that, I mean, I believe in it, but, you know, it's a long way away from me. Okay, I don't know how that's supposed to help me right now with the problems that I'm dealing with. I mean, maybe it's not you, but have you ever wondered if it's worth it to be a Christian? Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher and mathematician, he once argued that mathematically it's worth it. Okay, he didn't publish this. It was found like in his journals or unpublished writings later. Um, But he said his argument was just from a probability theory perspective that you should believe in God. It's better. It makes more sense. And today his argument is known as Pascal's wager. And it goes like this. One, God either exists or he doesn't. Okay, pretty simple. Okay, two, think about it like a game, a coin toss, right? God exists is heads. God doesn't exist is tails. Three, Your life is the coin flip. You might say, well, I don't want to decide. I'm agnostic. I don't know. But what he said was, it's not about what you choose to decide. It's how you live. That's the choice. Your life, not your faith statement. Your life is the coin flip. So either you live like God is true and real and he exists, or you live like he doesn't, heads or tails. And this leads to four. He said, if this is the case, you have to consider the potential gain and loss. He said, think about it from the negative, right? Let's say you're a Christian. You give up your Sundays. You give up your life to live for God. He said, at worst, you know, you, you got a little less sleep. Maybe you gave up some worldly pleasures. Maybe you lost a little bit of time. But at the end, right, you don't really lose that much. But he said, on the flip side, if there is a God, right, and you act like he is not real, You have infinity to lose or to gain, or to lose in this case. If there is a God and you didn't believe in him, you face eternity and hell, infinite loss. So he said that even if there's a small chance in your mind that God is real, you should take it. You should take it. Now, you might have some questions about this. I'm not the right person to ask. Okay, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not even the smart elder, right? That's Eric. He's coming back in about a month. Praise God, right? We're really thankful that he's coming back. You can ask Eric in a few weeks. But I bring up Pascal's wager for a reason, because I've heard kind of the simplified layperson, Jesse Lovell version of this a few times. Basically, how it goes is you should become a Christian because what do you have to lose? It's very similar. What do you have to lose? You have a lot to gain, too, but what do you have to lose? Okay, maybe you have to, like, meet some new people. Maybe you have to be a little bit more religious. But overall, you'll gain a lot of worldly things. You'll make friends at church. You might have opportunities to serve your local community. 
you'll learn morality, you'll live a good life, maybe you can pass that on to your kids. I've heard this a lot from parents who don't believe in Jesus, but they drop their kids off at church because they want their kids to learn family values, to have good influences. They want their kids to kind of learn about Western civilization or something like that. And if it turns out God is real, great, you had your basis covered. If not, you still lived a pretty good life. Not bad. So do you want to become a Christian? Now, I'm not denying that there are some good things about becoming a Christian, right? I am a pastor, after all. I'd be a terrible salesman for this church and my religion if I was saying just don't become a Christian. But here's the truth. And we read the passage already, okay? This is not a surprise. The Bible says that if Jesus isn't risen from the dead then who cares? Did you see that? Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If there is no resurrection, this is literally worthless. What I'm doing is the biggest waste of time. You showing up, you wasted one of the few precious days of your short life. And then verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It doesn't say that, okay, at the end of it all, if you had hope in this life, that's still good, right? Not bad. At least you lived a good life. No, it says if all you have is some hope in this short life, but it's not real, then what a travesty. You should pity us. We wasted our only shot at life. We're fools. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think I knew about this verse when I was a kid. Maybe you never heard it before either. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So anyway, I hope you guys come back next week. Uh, I'll greet you after service. No, I'm just kidding. No, peace out, guys. God bless. No, I'm not going to leave you hanging there. Again, I am a pastor. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian, I do want you to become one. But I don't want to sell you on the wrong thing. Okay, it's no bait and switch. Either it's real or it's not. And if you are a Christian, right, but you've been far from God, again, I don't want to leave you with just some good vibes. There's something real here or there's not. You should be able to take away something tangible. And even if you are someone who's all in, one of the regulars, someone on fire for God, I want to leave you with the real hope that we have, an impression of that. Because God knows that we need that. And that's why we celebrate Easter every year. It's just, it has to be real. And I believe it is. So three points from this text, as we do. Three points. First, what happened? What happened? The claim of Christianity is that it's rooted in historical reality. That something actually happened. And we are responding to that. Look at the first verse of chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Stop there. Paul's talking about the gospel. Okay, the message of Christianity is called the gospel. And we've all heard that word before, gospel music, etc. But what does that word mean? 
What does the word gospel mean? It just means good news. Good news. And that's interesting when you think about it. At the heart of Christianity is not a revolutionary new system to view the world. That might be part of it. At the heart of Christianity is not some super spiritual insight for people who have reached another level, though that might be somewhat a part of it. At the heart of Christianity is not morals and ethics or a worldview, even though that is a part of it. At the heart of Christianity is an announcement of something that happened. It's pretty simple. Just something happened, and now everything, all of this, everything we're doing here, it's all coming from that. That Jesus died and was buried and rose again. It's what Paul, the human author of 1 Corinthians, received himself, and it's what he passed on to others. And the gospel is the heartbeat of Christianity. Right? Romans 1, it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's just responding. It's just believing in this thing that happened. And this kind of makes Christianity a little strange in a way when you think about it. I was reading this book recently, and the author was talking about how when he was in college, he took this class on comparative religions, all these different world religions. And he said, you know, sometimes you're struck by how similar all religions are. It can be kind of weird, right? Like you see the same moral principles, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You see that across different religions, different faiths. But then as he was studying, he realized something about Christianity that made it different. It's not so much the moral precepts, though there are some differences. But the real difference has to do with the buy-in. Right? The real difference has to do with almost the intensity of Christianity, what it's asking of you. Every religion has its own origin story, its own message, but the common thread is, here's a way to live that will help you get enlightenment, that will help you grow spiritually, that will help you feel closer to a higher power. Here's a way to live a good life. But Christianity, he realized in studying it, fundamentally was like, hey, these things happened. What do you think? We say that these things happened. What do you say to that? Because if these things didn't happen, then none of this matters. You might as well just do whatever you want. As Paul quotes Later on in this book of 1 Corinthians, just eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Just live it up, because there is no meaning. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's important to see what the Bible actually says. Because sometimes Christians don't always follow what the Bible says. You ever realize that? Especially in the 19th century, there was this push to kind of get rid of this whole historical reality at the heart of Christianity. You had people like Friedrich Schleiermacher, he was the German theologian. He said, you know, Christianity isn't really even about Jesus. He didn't even have to be real. It's really more just about learning to depend upon God. And there were other theologians too, kind of of his school around him. They said that the stories of Jesus weren't meant to be taken as history. They were meant to be taken as legend. That they teach us timeless truths about human nature. And sure, okay, we are supposed to depend upon God. I'm not denying that. And of course, you know, the stories of Jesus do teach us about human nature. That is a fact. But if you dig into the reason why there was this push, it was because in the 19th century, Christians were scared. Because the world was getting modernized, right? People were learning science and all of this stuff. And they thought that, you know, everyone's going to leave the church because we're teaching that someone rose from the dead. 
right? Now people know that dead people don't come back to life because they're smart. So Christians wanted to make Christianity more palatable, more acceptable, so people wouldn't leave their churches. But the funny thing was, the assumption that they had was that people, the people in their churches were fools, right? That they were unintelligent, that they were dummies, simpletons, that they only believed in the resurrection of the dead because they didn't know science. They only believed in the supernatural because no one had told them that the supernatural wasn't real. But think about it. You didn't have to be a 19th century scientist to know that when dead people die, they're dead. They don't usually come back. Verse 12, people were already saying this in Paul's day. That's why he wrote this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, some people in the Corinthian church were like, hey, uh, you're saying that Jesus rose from the dead, but dead people don't come back to life. Okay, is this even real, Paul? See, people already had a hard time believing this crucial fact. C.S. Lewis he used to talk about this thing called chronological snobbery. He said, the people in the modern era, whenever it is, we tend to look down on the people in the past as not being as smart as us, uh, not having the same knowledge as us. We look back on the 19th century people and we're like, no, dude, you guys don't know anything. We have advanced. But the thing is, people, since the beginning, understood what death was. And, you know, if you just think about it a little bit, the Romans... They had an extremely advanced civilization. Some of the things that they built still exist to this day. Corinth, do you know where that was? Corinth was one of the major cities in Greece. Greece was the cradle of a uh, cradle of philosophy, of many philosophies actually, many of which people still study and adhere to to this day. These people were smart. The Corinthians were some of the most advanced people, the most advanced thinkers of their day. They didn't believe in people coming back to dead because they were dumb. Literally, the only people in the ancient world who believed in resurrection back then were the Jews because they believed in the one true God. And even most of the Jews didn't believe in resurrection, or at least half. And the ones that did only believed in kind of a general sense of resurrection. That's why when Paul talks about it in the book of Acts, people don't want to accept it. And yet, Paul, at the heart of his message, is this proclamation that Jesus is alive, that he's back. So what will you do with that? That's the question. You know, a couple of days ago, we gathered for Good Friday. We were talking about the death of Jesus, something we also remember, something we even celebrate, you could say. See, for us, we believe that the Bible teaches clearly that a man named Jesus was born, that he had a ministry in Israel 2,000 years ago, and he died, or more specifically, he was crucified. Now, here's the thing about what I just said. Unlike the Jesus is resurrected thing, that is not controversial at all, that Jesus lived and died. 99% of people believe that Jesus was a real person. Okay, even most, like, warlike, the most warlike atheists, they agree that Jesus was probably a real person who lived. They just don't believe all the other stuff. But they believe that. I was just talking to someone here a couple of weeks ago, and he said, think about it. Think about how we tell time, how we count years now. The whole world, okay, all these people who are so far from Israel, 
say it's the year 2021. We're counting according to when we think this Jewish carpenter was born, right? And if he lived, he probably died. That's why most people believe in his death, as people do. That's not controversial. And even the fact that he was crucified by the Romans is not necessarily controversial. I mean, I I actually think that the fact that Jesus was crucified and we still worship him and remember that, that's something. That says something. I mean, Christians loudly proclaim, we loudly proclaim that our leader was crucified. We wear little crosses around our necks. We hang up crosses in our churches. Crucifixion, it's not a a Christian invention. It was a Roman one. You guys know your history. We know the procedure. We know the rationale. Many people were executed. They were crucified by the Romans, not just Jesus. See, the Romans reserved crucifixion for enemies, for those who they wanted to make examples of. They wanted people to see that there is a cost to crossing them. Okay, no pun intended. First, they would scourge the person in question. Okay, this is the procedure. They would scourge. You know what that is, scourging? It was like whipping, but worse. Okay, basically, they would get like this leather whip, and they would put like sharp things on the end of it. They would embed them in glass or stone or or things like that, and they would whip the person on their back. They would tie them up, and then when the whip went into their back, it wouldn't just leave like a bruise or a mark. It would actually tear into the skin. Right? It would catch in the skin, and then they would pull it back, and it would rip skin out. Okay, it's a little graphic, but this is just what it was. This is what we talk about every week when we talk about the cross. They would scourge them, and they would keep doing that again and again and again until like the, the skin is ripped off, the muscle, the fat. You could see a lot of times the back of their skeleton right? because of the scourging. Some people died before they even got to the cross. That's how brutal it was. And if you were strong enough to survive, they'd make you carry the cross on your own back. And when you think about it, it's not just heavy. Your back is torn up. Your back is gone. So you're carrying this heavy beam of wood. And it's not like they sanded it for you, okay, so you won't get any splinters. It's rough. It's heavy. You're carrying it to the place of your own execution. And when you finally finish your walk, they get these big nails and they drive them through your hands and your feet and then prop you up naked and bleeding and humiliated and just destroyed for everyone to see. And they would do this to the leaders of movements, strong people to show that you're not that strong compared to us. Now, if you know about the nails in the hands and in the feet, it wasn't just through the palm, okay, even though that that's kind of like the terminology that we use, but it was more toward the wrist, through the nerve, in between the bones, so that you wouldn't just tear off. Because if you're hanging there with your full weight, it'll tear right through your hand. That's how crazy it was. And usually... After all of this, you die from suffocation. It's kind of interesting and kind of horrifying when you think about it. It's because you couldn't, you'd have to pull yourself up to breathe, and eventually you'd just be too weak from the blood loss. You're pulling yourself up on your wrist. It's so painful. You just can't do it anymore, and you just suffocate up there in front of the world to see. You're bleeding out. You asphyxiate. And this is how Jesus died. This is how our leader, the guy that we say will save us, this is how our king died. You can almost hear it, right? Is this your king? And we gather every year to remember this. We call it Good Friday. It's pretty crazy, right? When our Lord was humiliated, when he suffered, when he actually was killed and died. I mean, what are we, crazy? Why do we even talk about this? Are we crazy? Some people would say so. 
But all this to say, Christians don't deny that Jesus actually died. In fact, we glory in it. That he was buried even. We talk about that. It says right here in the text we read. We don't say that he just looked like he died, but he came back to life right away. Or even that he was unkillable. He was killed. It's just we can look back on all of that through a different lens because we believe that he didn't stay dead. We believe that on the third day after he died, he came back to life. And the first Christians were the people that saw him. That's where it started, with what happened. You heard the scripture reading, right? Mark 15 or 16, it's not exactly the most triumphant passage, right? They show up at the tomb. They're like, oh, everything's done, right? Jesus died. We lost. They show up at the tomb to pay respects to the body. These are his number one followers. The stone is rolled away, and someone tells them he is risen, and they don't go like, yeah, we knew it. They're afraid because they have no category for this. It's just what happened. See, Christians, they saw him. And this is what Paul says in verse 6. He says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James was Jesus' brother. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You can find these people, Paul says. There's nothing to hide. You can disbelieve them if you want, but at least talk to them. They said they saw him, and the truth is, I saw him too. That's what changed me. I saw him alive. Now, you and I can't talk to these eyewitnesses personally, but you see how this argument is going, right? He's not saying, okay, well, just think about it. Count the costs. You know, this is a good way to live. He says, look, I saw it. Jesus is alive. I think you should change your whole life. That's how it goes. He's telling you that something happened, something that meant everything to him. Jesus rose from the grave. And this leads to the second point. What it meant. Before we talk about what it means to us, let's talk about what it meant to Paul, because clearly it meant something like big in his life. I mean, why go so far as to say it's all vain, it's all pointless if this didn't happen? See, Paul understood that if Jesus rose again, it meant you do have to throw away everything you thought you knew about the world, about how things go, about religion, about what life is about. Specifically, he had two things on his mind, though, in this passage. Let's just talk about these. First, death and second sin. First, the ultimate reality of biological beings like us, we die, and then also morals and ethics now let's talk about death first. And we'll begin with a story. And on the one hand, it's heartbreaking. But on the other, it happens all the time, right? I looked up the stats for 2020 or 2019 or whatever. 65 million people died. That's 178,000 a day, 7,425 an hour. 120 people worldwide died a minute. It's two people every second. But I was reading this story about this woman. It was a first-hand account, and she was kind of processing through death because she was there when her stepfather, stepfather passed away. Okay, And she was just writing about it. It's not like the most like mind-blowing thing. It's so ordinary. I think that's what makes it so heartbreaking. But she was close to him. She said he was you know, a tall, funny man who loved her mother. And at the end of his life, I think he had cancer. She never said, but she said he was sick, and they all knew he was going to pass away. So she and the other kids, they came to the hospice uh, where he was at. 
And she said, it was so awkward, right? Because you show up and there's this guy that you know, and you usually talk with them and you're joking and you just catch up on life, but he's laying in this hospital bed and he can't even talk, right? And you feel so clumsy, right? Like you don't know what to say, right? What do you say? Like, you doing okay? You know, how can I help? You can't help. This man that she had known healthy was so sick. He was so weak. In the final days, he just groaned in the bed. He was staring. She said he would just stare right past you, like somewhere in the room. He just wasn't processing right. And she said his breathing was shallow, like he was sipping air. And then he was gone, just like that. He was just erased. His existence was erased from her own life. Now, if you've been present at the death of a loved one before, you know exactly what this is like. Right? It's uncomfortable. You don't even want to talk about it, right? Because this person, maybe they were strong in life. Maybe they were vivacious. Maybe they were so lively. Maybe they comforted you, but now they're so weak. And it's anticlimactic. You think that they deserve something better than this, but they're just fading away. There's no music. It's painful to watch. And you see death rob people of their strength, of their dignity, of their very selves. I mean, no one wants to talk about death. Some of you are like, why did you invite me, friend? That you're my friend, dude. You know, Zoe, the name of the church means life. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, death. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the what? From the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, then those also who have fallen asleep, euphemism for death, in Christ have perished. And look down at verse 26. Paul calls death the last enemy. Paul isn't scared to talk about death. Paul, when he talks about death, He looks it in the face, and he calls it for what it is. It is an enemy, but it is an ever-present one. It's a reality. How do you feel that I'm talking about death so much? You want me to move on? Point three? Want to sing some more songs? We'll sing one more. But how do you feel? Do you hate it? Do you fear it? I know a lot of people in churches who are deathly scared of death. Again, well, this time pun intended. I mean, that's why you exercise so much and you diet a certain way and you're always looking for that superfood right, that's going to keep you from getting cancer. You know what I mean? It's why we put our trust in essential oils. That's kind of 2019, right? And you know, anyway, <laughs> I'll talk about that another time. But anyway, we, we're, we're scared of death. We fear it. And I know you're like, come on, Pastor, this is Easter. But Easter doesn't mean anything if it doesn't have to do with death. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised. This is the claim of Christianity. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus, Paul says, has defeated death. And that's it. See, Paul was a missionary. His whole life was dedicated to preaching the gospel. 
And most people know him today as being the Apostle Paul. But before this, he was a Jewish person who thought Christianity was a weirdo cult sect, and he tried to stomp it out. He hated Christianity because he thought it was impure. It was something that was messing with what was actually true, and he persecuted it with fervor. He was crazy. He was throwing Christians in jail. He was trying to get people uh, thrown out of the synagogue. I mean, he was someone who really hated Christianity. But then he met Jesus in the flesh, and everything changed. And in the book of Acts, we read of Paul's missionary journeys afterwards. And toward the end of the book, like in chapter 23 or so, I should have written it down, but you can check me later, 23 or 24, somewhere around then, Paul gets arrested, and this basically leads to more and more trials and more and more problems for him. And he's talking to these Jewish people, okay, his own people. And he starts talking about the resurrection, and everyone starts arguing, right? They're like, there is no resurrection. And some people are like, yeah, there is. And Paul, you know, he's like, okay, dude, this is what I'm talking about. This is the thing, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, And all this stuff happens and all these different conversations and he goes before all these different people until finally he says something that has always resonated with me and I paraphrase, but he finally says, is it really that crazy, this is my paraphrase, is it really that crazy for you people who believe in God that he could raise the dead? Is it really that crazy that God Almighty who created everything and you believe in him Why is it so hard to believe in a resurrection? Wouldn't God be stronger than death? Wouldn't he be able to do this? And this is what we believe as Christians. We believe in the reality of death, but we believe in a greater reality, the power of God. And if you're not a Christian here or you're struggling, but you still believe there is a God, I would encourage you to pursue that line of reasoning. Because a lot of people I know, they believe in God. They do. Deep down inside, they know that God is real. But they haven't really explored that. They haven't really applied that to the problems that we face in this world. God is stronger than death. So this leads to the second thing, sin. It's the other question. If God is stronger than death, why do we die then? Why do people die? Well, the simple answer, to put it bluntly, full disclosure, is sin. We sin. Death is a consequence for the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of humanity, of us. And again, you might be like, why did you bring me here, dude? You know, to your friend, because I knew this pastor was going to do this. Man, Once I saw the suit, I knew he was going to talk about sin and guilt and hellfire and all that. I'm not trying to be a downer on Easter Sunday. But again, we have to talk about it. Because Easter doesn't mean anything without sin. The Bible explains death in a way way that nothing and no one else does. See, the Bible actually says that death is unnatural. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is different. Because what is common sense when it comes to death? What is worldly wisdom? It's death is a part of life, right? It's the circle of life. It just happens. And an atheistic worldview holds that death just is. That's all there is to it. Maybe, maybe we can try to invent technology to keep us living longer. Maybe we can eat healthier. The atheists haven't discovered essential oils yet. You know, God bless them. Just kidding. But I mean, for them, right, if, it's, if there is no God, if all of this is by chance, then death, 
while it's unfortunate, at the end of the day, isn't really something to get all upset about, okay? Because it's just the way the universe is. There's no meaning to life. There's no purpose. This planet is just dust. We are here by chance. We're just a collection of matter. There's no such thing as right and wrong. It just is what it is. But the Bible says that death is unnatural, that it shouldn't be this way. And honestly, if you had to weigh the two, I mean, what rings most true to you? Because when you look around, I think most people actually do view it as unnatural. You just can't accept that it is the way it is. Like I was talking about that lady whose uh, stepfather died, and she wrote out some reflections, and she actually talked with a hospice nurse about her experiences. She just wanted to process it, right? She wanted to talk about death. Because it really shook her. Like, she was really affected. And she's like, how can you nurses hang out in the hospital all day and see people die again and again and again? And she started just hanging out at the hospice place or wherever, the home. And she said she met a woman there whose brother's daughter died. And her brother's daughter was two years old. And the woman was saying, look, like, he was wrecked by it. In fact, he took out all of his anger against death on me. Because she had two kids. And he had only that one. And he actually said to his sister, he said, I wish one of your kids died instead because you have two. I only had one. It's not fair. He said that to his own sister. Now, of course, we can understand. And that's my point. We can understand. Because death wrecks us. Death is something that we hate. We're so angry about it. I mean, it's messed up what he said. And yet we feel him the pain, the confusion. See, what the Bible says is, I think, what we all understand to be true deep down inside, death is an enemy. I think it's part of the image of God. We know this. And even irreligious people, when they come face to face with death, view death as an enemy. They don't go, well, it's just a part of life, moving on to the next thing. No, they rage against the dying of the light. Death is a villain. Now, this is why I got to talk about sin. Because the Bible says that death is unnatural, but it also says that we are the ones who let this enemy into the gate. For the wages of sin, the scripture says, is death. We sin and then we get our payment at the end of the day. It is our own demise. When even Adam took the forbidden fruit in the garden, they let sin into their hearts and death into the world. That's the worldview of the Bible. And the thing is, God is a holy judge. He cares about right and wrong. And the sentence for what we have done wrong is death. Physical death, yes. And there is not one person who has not died. I know some of you Bible nerds are saying, Elijah and Enoch, okay, we can talk about that later. But everyone dies. Everyone dies no matter how hard we try to live. And after that, spiritual death, judgment, and eternity in hell separated from God. From his loving presence. Just his wrath. And again, I think, I think we know that there's something off about us. A lot of times we don't want to hear it. I feel like sometimes the people who don't want to hear it the most are the people who know it most clearly. That there is something. That we are guilty. We know the world has fallen. We know that the same people capable of great kindness and compassion are also the same people who can be incredibly cruel. That the people closest to us are the ones who can hurt us the most. But I think some of us know that we are the same. 
And I know a lot of people carry incredible burdens of guilt around with them. For me, again, being 34 years old, I started this whole thing when I was in my 20s. And I remember hearing some of these things, and I, I couldn't even, I, it shocked me, okay, to be honest. I was like, why are you confiding this to me, right? Like, I'm just a child. But people would share about the things that they felt so burdened by. You know, at the time you were so angry that you hit your kid, right, and you hurt them. Or the lie that you told decades ago that no one knows about and everyone's praising you as being a man of integrity and you know that all of this has been built on a falsehood. Or maybe how we never forgave our parents to their faces and now it's too late. You have regret. Whatever it is, we try to push it down. I see people try to push it down or they go to therapy to try to just accept it. We try all sorts of things to deal with it and it just never goes away. Paul preached the gospel with such fervor because he believed that he had found the answer to the problems we all recognize and deal with, to sin and death. So let me ask you, and we'll wrap this up pretty soon, but let me ask you. We all know death is real. Most of us, many of us carry burdens of guilt with us. How are you dealing with it? How are you dealing with it? You might say, okay, I don't believe what you're saying. I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Then what do you believe in? Where will you go? I think that the, these problems, the fact that we all see them as problems, I think that that is evidence that we need something. I'm not saying that the problems prove the solution, but I think they point to them or point to it or point to him. If not Jesus, how do you deal with the enemy that is coming for you and for me. Because we all have to deal. We're all mortal. None of us are perfect. This leads to the third and final point. What it means for us. Some of you guys are fans of the late theologian John Stott. Some of you have no idea who it is. It's okay. But when he was younger, okay, he, he grew up going to church his whole life. He was baptized as a kid. He was in, in England. I think he was part of the Anglican church. But he was confirmed, right? He professed Christianity. But the thing is, he wasn't. He wasn't a Christian. One day, this old pastor preached this message, and his text was what Pilate said to Jesus right before he was crucified. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. Famous words. Um, but Pilate, uh, he said it about Jesus, excuse me, not to Jesus. But Pilate was talking to Jesus, and then he went out kind of to the crowds, to the Jewish people, the relig religious leaders, and he said, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And the pastor, the preacher, he said, what about you? He redirected it. And John Stott, as a young man, was in the congregation. And he said, he said, what will you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And then he went to Revelation 3.20. He said, behold, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Will you open the door or not? And John Starr realized he had never done so. He had never opened the door in faith. And that night he went beside his bed and he knelt down and he said, God, I realize I don't have a relationship with you at all. I want to have faith. Let's see where this goes. Basically, that's what he said. He said nothing happened. There was no bright light, no voice from heaven. He wasn't sure if anything happened at all, even inside. But over the weeks and over the months, he realized that everything had changed he did believe God had given him the faith. Now, I started with Blaise Pascal, 
and I said that his wager was not actually in his published works. He didn't actually want to put that out into the world. This is what he actually said, and he was a Christian. He said, faith is different from proof. The latter is human. The former is a gift from God. Look, I could try to argue, argue you into Christianity. I could try to sell you on it. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that that's really what's going to do it for you. It's really you and God. And if you're struggling in your faith, I do want to preach to you encouragement. I want to bring you the word of God. I think it can help you. But at the end of the day, God has to use it. It's not me. What will you do with Jesus? Where are you at with Jesus? If you put the first two points together, the world is broken, fallen, and so are we. But Jesus was born into this world and he lived a different life. He lived a life unlike anyone who has ever lived, righteous and compassionate. And then he died on a cross. But we believe it wasn't a failure. It was the plan. And listen to these words from Isaiah 53. We read it on Friday, but hear it again. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, this life is full of burdens. This life is full of sorrows and grief. And beyond that, there is punishment for our iniquities. But what did Jesus do? What did he come to do? He came to pay the price. He bore our guilt and our shame and our sin and the wrath of God for us. And he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead as a beacon of hope that all who look to him might never experience the sting and curse of death so that all who look to him might be able to say, along with Paul, who saw him, that to live is Christ and to die is now gain. Because Jesus fundamentally changed something about sin and death. Because in Christ, death is changed from an enemy to an expressway to God's presence in heaven. And it's not just heaven. If Jesus actually is raised from the dead, if the grave cannot hold him, if he has been raised to indestructible life, as the book of Hebrews says, that means that God is already making things new. That he's already started it. And he promised that he would. That this world that we know is broken, that we suffer in, where we struggle and where we toil, where there is pain and brokenness, that this world will pass away and there will be a new creation. And Jesus, as we read earlier, is the first fruits of it. And when God makes all things new, there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. And Jesus himself will wipe every tear from every eye. And everything that makes life in this world hard to bear will be a distant memory. Everyone's trying to fix this world. Everyone's suffering and struggling in their own way. 
But the claim of Christianity is that Jesus did something about it. And that's what the gospel is. Something new has happened. Something unlike anything else that has ever happened. Jesus is alive. And that's the hope of Easter. And you can have this hope right now in him. He is risen. And we'll close with this. I want to end with this idea. But let's go back to the beginning. Have you ever wondered if it's worth it to be a Christian? Because the truth is, there is a cost. I didn't mention this, but Jesus said, if you want to come after me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after me. It requires humility to say that I am a sinner, to admit your guilt. It requires faith to believe in something that we don't see. Have you ever wondered if it's worth it? You're still wondering. And I'm guessing some of you are. Here's what I want to leave you with. Why don't you go to him yourself? We can talk after if you want. I'd be happy to talk to you. But why don't you go to Jesus yourself? Because what I believe with every fiber of my being is that he is alive. And because he is alive, his bones aren't in the Middle East somewhere decomposing. Jesus is alive. In fact, he is here. You know, there was a time in my life where I didn't believe in Jesus, just like John Stott. I thought I did. I had grown up in church my whole life, but I didn't believe, and I wasn't sure if I even wanted to. I had no assurance. I was aimless. I didn't know where I was going. And when someone put the gospel in front of me and said, you know, Jesus is alive, and if you want to follow him, this is what needs to happen, I wasn't sure. I wanted to walk away, honestly. I was like, I don't think I want this. I don't think I want to give up my Sundays and wake up early and all this. And I knew that if I were wrong, or if I made the wrong choice and I chose to believe in God and he didn't exist, I didn't even want to go along with Pascal's wager. I was like, I want to make the most of my life right now. But I remember reading Jeremiah 29, 13, where God said to his people, he said, you will seek me. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I remember those words came alive to me, so I did an experiment of faith like John Stott did. I figured I needed to give it a real try. And I sought the Lord with as much of my heart as I could, and here I am today. Right? A few things happened in between. But the point is, it's not so much that I found him looking back, it's that he found me because he's real. And that's what I'm getting at. If Jesus is alive right now, he is out there, he is here, and the promise still stands, seek him and you will find him, or he will find you when you seek him with all of your heart. Go to him. Don't take my word for it. If you don't believe, that's between you and God. If you think what I said is pie in the sky stuff or too good to be true, I urge you, just seek him. And Christian, a word to you too, because you already believe. Maybe you've been wandering. Maybe you've been backsliding. Maybe you haven't been feeling it. Seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. And when you do, it's as the hymn says, you will find along with him pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. His own presence to cheer and to guide. You will find strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all yours 
and 10,000 besides. Will you pray with me? God, we know that faith is a gift of grace. And we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So God, I pray that you would give us faith this afternoon. Faith in the risen Lord. That we, that we might look to him and find the hope that we need in this fallen world. That we might look to him to find courage and even peace in the face of death. That we might look to him to find forgiveness and mercy for all of our sins. And God, I pray that as we look to him this afternoon, that we would give him all the praise. He is the Savior. He is the one who died for us, and we didn't deserve it. All glory and honor and power be to him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.